Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythcard Academy. This is session number three of our discussion of Alice's Adventures. We're going to do up through, I hope to get through chapter six of uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland today. I'm not sure I'll get all the way through it. Um, though I'm confident we'll get up through into chapter five, uh, at least. But... Uh, before we get started, uh, quick announcement. First of all, don't forget, MythMoot is coming up. MythMoot is uh, the deadline for MythMoot uh, registration. If you want to be able to attend in person, is just over a week away on June 9th. Uh, so I think it's close of business on June 9th. Um, so next Thursday. So uh, d if you are interested in joining us, and I hope you will, uh, don't forget to sign up. And um, we're, we are going to be doing, though, of course, a fully hybrid conference. And if you can only attend digitally, then we can do that too. And there is no restriction on that up to and through even the last day uh, of the conference there. So... Um, all right, so JJ was asking here, will the class ultimately cover any Alice adaptations? I have to admit, JJ, I hadn't really thought about that until this past week, um, but I've been getting several messages about Alice adaptations, and I think we might need to do that. Um, we'll see. I'll think about that. Uh, we've got a while here. Um, it's going to be a few months, at least, uh, getting through both Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. Um, so we've got some time uh, before we get there. But um, I'm, uh, I'm definitely... I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. I mean, there have been a lot of adaptations, of course, of Alice in various forms. Um, so, um, yeah. I'm definitely thinking about it, but I'm not sure on what principles I would choose exactly. So anyway, well, that's why it's why I'm not sure. Um, not because I dislike the idea of looking at adaptations, but just because I'm not really quite sure. I'm neither quite sure where to start uh, in choosing which adaptations we were to look at and discuss, um, and, and nor am I sure where to stop <laughs> if we did start. So um, uh, I guess Alice... Alice adaptations has never been I have never been hugely interested I haven't been very interested in most of them um, so it's just it's just not been a thing that I've really thought about I love the books but I I have not generally been I don't go out and you know, I don't want like go out of my way to see the latest uh, Alice adaptation so um, a lot of them I don't know very well so I'm not like for instance when we did Dracula there were a bunch of adaptations that I wanted to do um, but that's largely because Dracula adaptations are a fascination of mine. And I'm really interested to see how modern people relate themselves to those stories. I feel like Dracula uh, adaptations are a really interesting, like cultural indicator in a lot of ways. Um, so anyway, but as I say, that just happens to be like a little personal hobby of mine. Um, so I was like very charged up to talk about Dracula adaptations. Whereas again, Alice, I'm a novice when it comes to that stuff. So anyway, we'll, um, but we'll see. I'm definitely open to the idea of it. Um, we'll see, um, we'll see, we'll see what we do. We'll see what we find. But anyhow, um, let's, um, uh, one other, 
announcement that I wanted to make sure you guys knew about, and that is an event that's happening this Saturday, um, our virtual open house with the Signum Academy. Our Signum Academy Clubs program uh, has been a great program for a year. We've just celebrated our uh, one-year anniversary of Signum Academy Clubs, so we've had groups of uh, groups of, of young people uh, from third grade through twelfth grade participating with us in language classes, creative writing uh, clubs, rather, language clubs, creative writing clubs, and book clubs uh, for the last year and uh, would love to invite some more kids to join. Um, this is a, a neat time as we're just coming into summer. So whether you're looking for uh, some really um, both fun and edifying summer activities for kids or whether you're, you know, maybe you're a homeschooler thinking towards your fall curriculum or whatever, um, uh, we have some really cool language options that you won't be able to get the same kind of language instruction anywhere else. So anyway, um, lots of um, um, uh, lots of options there. So I just wanted to invite folks. That's going to be this Saturday, June 4th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Go to signumuniversity.org slash events, and you can find our virtual open house page here. And on this page is our registration button, so you can register for the event. It's going to be a Zoom event there. So... Anyway, there we go. Um, there's my announcement. Now let's dig into the text because we have more delightful poetry to get to today. Um, so we are in chapter three. So we're a couple of chapters behind, but that's okay. Actually, there are not very many passages that I want to talk about in relationship to chapter three and four, actually. We're going to go through chapter three and four fairly quickly. Um, and then I'm going to linger on five and six. <laughs> Based on the number of slides I chose, I seem to be about uh, four to five times as eager to talk about chapters five and six as I am to talk about three and four. Um, uh, I think shamelessly because there's more poetry uh, in the others, but we'll see. Um, okay. So this is um, uh, her attempting to talk to the mouse. Now, you remember they had just climbed out. They they swam across the pool of salt water, which was, of course, the pool of her own tears, right? Um, which you'll remember that she was abjuring herself not to shed um, in vain. Um, and uh, uh, But they finally got to the end, and she's soaking wet, right? Because she's been swimming in her own tears. Um, so she wants to get dry, right? So here's the mouse's solution. Ahem! said the mouse with an important air. Are you all ready? This is the driest thing I know. Silence all round, if you please. William the Conqueror, whose cause was favored by the Pope, was soon submitted to by the English, who wanted leaders, and had been of late much accustomed to usurpation and conquest. Edwin and Morcar, the earls of Mercia and Northumbria... Oh, said the lorry with a shiver. I beg your pardon, said the mouse, frowning, but very politely. Did you speak? Not I, said the lorry hastily. I thought you did, said the mouse. I proceed. Edwin and Morcar, the earls of Mercia and Northumbria, declared for him, and even Stigand, the patriotic archbishop of Canterbury, found it advisable. Found what? said the duck. Found it, the mouse replied rather crossly. Of course you know what it means. I know what it means well enough when I find a thing, said the duck. It's generally a frog or a worm. The question is, what did the archbishop find? The mouse did not notice this question, but hurriedly went on. Found it advisable to go with Edgar Atheling to meet William and offer him the crown. William's conduct at first was moderate, but the isolation, but the insolence of his Normans... How are you getting on now, my dear? It continued, turning to Alice as it spoke. 
as wet as ever, said Alice in a melancholy tone. It doesn't seem to dry me at all. In that case, said the dodo solemnly, rising to its feet, I move that the meeting adjourn for the immediate adoption of more energetic remedies. Okay, um, so uh, this is the mouse's solution for how to dry Alice off, right? Um, now, on the one hand, this pivots entirely, right, on a simple pun, right? That a, um, a dry text could be used to dry someone off, right? But it, notice it's not just a pun. It's not merely a different usage of the word, like a different meaning of the word used in the same way, right? Um, it's a quite different sense of the word dry. I mean, it's a very different part of speech. Um, the idea that by reading something that is dry, you even if it were the same kind of dryness, right, um, that you could make someone else dry by reading it, right, is quite a separate leap. That is, it, it's not just about the, you don't only have to substitute the other meaning of the word, right? Um, but you have to completely turn the word around, right? Um, on one level, apart from, again, the fact that it's not that sort of dryness, right? Um, there is also the, it, even if you take something that is the kind of dryness, the same kind of dryness, right? Um, looking at dry sand is not going to make you dry, right? You know, um, looking at dry sand is not going to make you dry. Um, the fact that this thing itself has a quality called dryness is not going to bring about the quality of dryness in something else, right? Um, it has no, there's no verb here. It's just adjective. There's no verb. Um, so you have both levels involved in this wordplay, which of course is one reason why it's totally ineffective, right? Um, Alice is as wet as ever. It doesn't seem to dry me at all, right? Um, so, okay. Why? What's, what's, what's happening here? Now, as always, as I was saying last time, I think I was saying this last time, um, what I always want to be doing here is looking at the patterns, right? What patterns can we see about how, you know, what is so commonly called nonsense. And again, it's a word that Carol uses. I don't, uh, um, I don't bash it entirely. Um, I don't bash it. Lewis Carroll does use the word nonsense, both in the frame, in the poem, right? Remember, uh, I believe it was Secunda who hoped that there would be nonsense in it, the story, right? And uh, the word nonsense gets thrown around. I think it's Alice. Is it Alice? Who objects to people speaking such nonsense. Um, anyway, there's, there's, um, the word comes up. It's, it's relevant to the book, but I don't trust it. I don't trust it because it's not exactly nonsense. So what I want to be looking at are patterns. What patterns do we see when we see these things? So when it comes to word usage, there are many places 
in this work and in Through the Looking Glass, even more delightfully, in my opinion, that we are going to see this kind of emphasis on um, word usage, right? So let's look at the two different examinations of English word usage in this passage. One, of course, is sort of the frame of the whole thing, right? This sense of dryness. This is the uh, this is the driest thing the mouse knows. So he's going to read it in hopes that it will dry Alice off. But of course, embedded within this exchange is another play on word usage patterns in English, right? And of course, I mean the duck, the duck's intervention, right? Um, the duck, at least, seems to be paying attention to what the mouse is saying. Um, that isn't necessarily to say that the duck is, um, the duck's comment is entirely relevant, but he's at least listening carefully, right? Um, when the duck says, found what? What's the joke? What is, what is Lewis Carroll putting pressure on through the question of the duck. And even Stigand, uh, the patriotic Archbishop of Canterbury, found it advisable, found what? said the duck. Do you, do you see the pressure that he's putting here? The thing that Lewis is drawing our attention to? Of all the things that have been said by the mouse in his recitation of the driest thing he knows, um, our attention is only being drawn to this one thing, and yeah, thistledown, it's a, it's, a, it's a grammar thing, right? It's a grammar thing. He found it advisable to do something. David, exactly. The it in found it advisable is not actually a pronoun in the sense that it lacks an antecedent. This is a thing that we do in English at times, right? Use dead little pronouns um, which don't really connect to anything, right? Um, the question, found what? What did the archbishop find? There's no answer to that question, right? He just, he found it advisable. So our attention is being drawn to the nonsensical nature, to use the word I keep objecting to, um, of that particular grammatical construction. It's a thing that, it's a kind of thing that we would say all the time without even thinking about it, right? Um, and it's not certainly one of the things that jumps out at you about this uh, passage of history that's being, um, uh, that's being uh, um, re recited here, right? You could say he found advice, sure, Mudmore, but if you said that, you'd be saying it quite differently than how this is being said. The word advice is not the antecedent of the pronoun it. He doesn't find advice advisable, right? Nor does he find the situation advisable. Right? It's, they're literal. I mean, David's right. There is literally no antecedent to the pronoun it. The word it in that sentence has no meaning. It 
it's pointing it that pronoun it is pointing to something that's a, the job of a pronoun right the job of a pronoun is it replaces a noun it points to something but when one uses an expression like that and we have several of these right um yeah jack rabbit you're right it's like when we say it's raining what's raining yeah Exactly. That's another way in which we use a similar kind of construction, right? Um, now, the duck understands how pronouns work, right? Um, and he knows how the noun found or the verb found works, right? That's a transitive verb, right? You can't just say, I found. You have to find something, right? Um, tr- found is a transitive verb. It has to have an object or it doesn't make any sense, Right? And the duck knows this, so he wants to know. What did the archbishop find? He knows what he finds. When he finds something, it's generally a frog or a worm. Well, the question is, what did the archbishop find? Right? He's used a transitive, you know, the, the, a transitive verb is being used of the archbishop, right? And yet, nothing is in fact being found, right? Um, and the mouse chooses not to notice this question, right? But hurriedly goes on. Um, and, um, yeah. Gildalwin, there are ways, like, so when people diagram sentences, there are things you can do with those pronouns. It's not that, it, it's not actually nonsense. But it is weak writing. I just did it. It is weak writing. Um, well, no, that it is vaguely pointing to this kind of construction, right? So there's a vague antecedent, which is still weak writing, by the way. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, so it's called a pleonastic subject. Uh, Jackrabbit Monster, I would say that the phrase pleonastic subject is a fancy word that's been used to describe that's a piece of descriptive grammar, right? Um, Given that people do, in fact, talk this way, you need a way to describe that thing that they do, but that doesn't mean that that thing that they do makes sense, right? Um, That thing that they do is still um, a... uh, um, uh, is still a... um, that, that thing that they do is still you know, that, that just because we can, you know, that people find a name to put to it doesn't mean that it's a sensible thing to do. Um, and the duck, as I say, puts puts pressure there. It's not that the usage of it there is incorrect. It's not incorrect. It's, it's a way that people genuinely talk, right? And nobody but the duck was confused at that moment, right? Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, that's not the point. The point is not that it is, it's not genuinely nonsensical to speak like that. But it's one of those things where when you ask the question, what did the Archbishop find? One realizes there's no answer to that question, right? Um, it's a pointless question, it's empty. Right, that whole expression, that whole way of using language is empty. There is no answer. That's why the mouse gives no answer. Right? Um, he 
does not notice the question, right? Um, he did, of course, notice it, but he chooses not to notice it. Now, why? Why do this? What's the pattern here? We've got these two word usage plays in the middle of this, right? Our attention being forcibly drawn to this little quirk of pronoun usage that's common, especially in slightly more stilted and um, sort of formalized or quasi-formalized English. Um, and the peculiar, not just pun on dry, but pun plus weird um, reapplication of dry. Huh. Wait a second, I just noticed something. There is a pattern there. And it's all about transitive verbs. Yeah. I never noticed that before. Okay, okay, okay. Stick with me. Found is a trans... So remember, a transitive verb is a verb that requires an object, right? You can Find is an example, right? You can't just say, I found, right? Um, you have to find something, right? What he's trying to do is to take the adjective... What the mouse is trying to do is take the adjective dry and turn it into a transitive verb, right? He's trying to dry Alice with this dry passage of text, right? The text is dry, and he's trying to use it to dry her. He's trying to take this state of dryness and make it transitive, right? And in the midst of his passage, which is which he is trying to apply in a transitive fashion to Alice, the duck draws our attention to transitive verbs um, by pointing out that this transitive verb fails of its object at all, that the archbishop does not in, in fact, find a singular thing, not a frog, not a worm, right? Therefore, nothing of use, uh, of any manner of use, does the archbishop find. And of course, nor does the mouse succeed in drying Alice. Um, we've got failures of transitive verbs all over the place, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, um, I... I never thought of that. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. So the duck is, in a sense, not deliberate. I don't think the duck is, like, cannily mocking the enterprise of the mouse here, right? I don't think the duck is quite that aware. But, um, but I do think it draws our attention in those directions. Yes, David, it's pointing out and making fun of things we take for granted. Yes, and it does that in two ways. Right, um, we take for granted what the it refers to again. It's, we, it's kind of, we we generally understand that construction, even though there's no antecedent to that word. Right, we generally don't ask the question, "What did the archbishop find?" Um, but at the same time, the fact that the mouse is attempting to make transitive the, the concept of dryness, right? Uh, to transfer dryness from the text to Alice herself, um, it draws our attention to the whole, the sort of the futility of that. We, we take for granted these kinds of usages, right? Um, well, of course, by reading something that is dry, isn't going to make anybody else dry. Um, 
but yes, uh, David, I think that a very great deal of uh, of significant percentage of the humor in Lewis Carroll uh, hinges directly on this is that that would be my vote for one of the dominant patterns in all of Lewis Carroll is um, pointing out the things that we take for granted. Right. Drawing our attention to things that we might say or pass by without noticing or alternatively, you know, like sometimes belaboring things that we, you know, um, uh, like bringing our attention to things which like don't seem to make sense to us because we don't think of that is like, again, playing on this whole idea of the stuff that you take for granted. Um, and he does that in multiple different um uh, multiple different directions. Jackrabbit Monster, it's interesting. I do think um, that um, the uh, it's a meditation on the contrast between concrete and abstract. I think that that's interesting. The dryness, again, it's a different... It's not just that it's an adjectival instead of a verbal dryness. It's a totally different sort of dryness, right? Um, if you submerged this book in water it would not make that text any less dry, right? Um, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a metaphorical, abstract dryness, right? So, again, that, um, that play between the metaphorical and the literal, I think perhaps better than concrete and abstract. Maybe that's a little bit more, more precise. Maybe we'll see. Um, but, uh, well, that is, we'll see if we see that pattern in other places. But, yeah, the... Um, um, the thing um, between yeah the the metaphorical and the literal. I'm always a little bit hesitant to use the word literal uh, because a lot of people struggle with applying the word literal in my experience. But um, uh, b- but for lack of anything else, yes, um, the um, uh, the the metaphorical and the literal. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting, Jackrabbit. The it of the mouse is abstract and the it of the duck is concrete. That is interesting. Yeah, maybe you're right about abstract and concrete. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Um, but anyway, there's another element of this whole situation, right? And that's uh, as... Um, who was talking about that? David was talking about this. Um, recitation. Um Alice tries repeatedly to recite her lessons. Yes. And what is the mouse reciting? Her lessons, right? I mean, this is... That's the other joke, right? So you've got the word play. You've got the grammar joke that underlies this, that kind of two-level grammar joke with the transitive verbs and all that kind of thing. And then... um, But you also have the childhood nursery lessons joke, right? What it, it's not just any random dry text that he's reciting. He's not reciting the dictionary. He's not reciting, you know, some piece of, uh, you know, I don't know, legal analysis or something like that. He's reciting a history lesson and exactly the sort of history lesson that Alice has probably had to hear at school, right? Um, you know, in in her lessons, this is undoubtedly from her own lessons that the that the mouse is reciting, right? Um, so you see, of course, the other joke here: the recitation of the history lesson about William the Conqueror does Alice no good at all, right? Um, 
Now, of course, the good that the mouse is trying to do is to dry her off, which is ridiculous. But again, you see the joke there, right? Um, why is this kind of lesson useless for little girls of seven years old? Well, because it's very dry, right? It's very dry, very dry history. And so the mouse tries to recite it in order to dry her off, hoping that it might do some good in that way. It's because of the badness of the prose, right? Because of how boring this passage is that the mouse thinks it might be of use, ironically, right? But of course, turns out it's not even good for that, right? Um, so uh, there you go. There you go. Um, Edith, that's a pretty deep lesson for a modern second grader. I'm sorry to say it's not a very deep lesson for a mid-19th century second grader who would certainly have been many years ahead of a modern second grader in American public schools. Um, I just, that's pretty clear when you look at old uh, lesson books from the 19th century and see uh, what they were advising teaching children at what age. Um, however, Edith, it is boring, right? I mean, again, this is not like Alice's favorite lesson. This seems to be one of Alice's least favorite lessons that's being recited at her. So maybe it doesn't do her any good because uh, it certainly she finds it very boring. Um, but um, uh, uh, but anyway. Um, but yes, um, I don't think in the mid-19th century they would have considered this um, uh, they would have considered this like inappropriate for a child of seven to be learning. A child of seven should, you know, know about William the Conqueror. And I should say an English child of seven should know about William the Conqueror. Um, but, um, okay. Um, keep in mind, as a joke about Alice's lessons, it also fits part of the broader pattern. Right, her lessons have have are now a uh, a bona fide motif of this book. She was reciting the things. Remember how proud she is of the things that she knows. Right, Alice is a good student. Alice is a good student and knows a prodigious number of things. That's how you can tell her apart from Mabel, for instance. Remember, so Alice knows all these things. Now she's been having a problem reciting the things that she knows since she's gone down the rabbit hole. Right. Um, so that's an issue. Here we have one of her lessons recited back to her, and it's useless. It's a, there's a complete disconnection between her and her lessons. So that appears to be the disconnection between Alice and what she has learned, right? Between Alice and her lessons seems to be continuous, even though this goes, um, you know, in a sort of a, a different a different sort of way. Um, yeah, Jed Artanis, you're right. Uh, uh, Tolkien was reciting, uh, was reading, writing, and reciting Greek at that age. Um, yeah, yeah, no, they would have. Um, 19th century schoolboys would have been learning Latin for years by the time they were seven, for sure, and some of them Greek. Um, yes, yes. Um, anyway, okay. Um, all right. Um, Let's, let's keep going. All right, so um, the mouse tail poem, 
you knew I had to talk about the owl, the owl, the the mouse's tail poem. Um, so here's out the transition into it. You promised to tell me your history, you know, said Alice, and why it is you hate C and D, she added in a whisper, half afraid that it would be offended again. Cats and dogs, you remember about she, she it said it would tell her why it why he hates cats and dogs. Alice notice has the tact this time not to allude to them explicitly, right? She, uh, ta- she's showing very great sensitivity here, isn't she? Mine is a long and a sad tale, said the mouse, turning to Alice and sighing. It is a long tale, certainly, said Alice, looking down with wonder at the mouse's tail. But why do you call it sad? And she kept on puzzling about it while the mouse was speaking, so that her idea of the tale was something like... And we'll get to her idea of the tale of the mouse in just a second. Um, Okay. So, another pun, right? Another play on words here. Um, The mouse is going to tell her a long and sad tale, and Alice is distracted. It is a long tale, certainly, right? Looking at the mouse's... So she's staring at the mouse's tail and failing to listen to the mouse's story, right? So we can see from the beginning um, that uh, she's not tracking at all, right? Why do you call it sad? What's sad about your tail? It looks like a perfectly respectable tail, right? Um and David, I certainly agree that Alice has misunderstood the mouse's discomfort from the beginning. Even her apparent tact, right, with C and D, isn't the words cat and dog. Um, but as David says, her fond references to her pets. And not only that, but she, both times, when she talked about cats and when she talked about dogs, she talked about them catching mice, right? I mean, she she overtly alludes, she forgets herself and her audience so completely. Well, I guess it's not herself she's forgetting, it's really her audience, Um uh, notice that's an interesting expression. That's exactly the kind of expression that Lewis Carroll would make fun of, by the way, to forget oneself. But anyway, Alice does not forget herself, but she forgets her audience, right? And actually segues to talking about the cats and dogs killing mice or rats, um, uh, which is why, of course, that mouse is appropriately uh, offended. Um, and... Now she is once again still... So her problem with the mouse is that she's been too self-absorbed, right? Um, She just absolutely cannot get outside her own head into thinking about things from the mouse's perspective. And now she's looking at the mouse, but even her gaze at the mouse is superficial. Or rather, she's using her eyes instead of her ears. She's supposed to be using her ears to listen to the tale, the story of the mouse... And instead, she's using her eyes to look at the physical tail of the mouse. And she keeps on puzzling about it, puzzling about why the mouse considers the tail both long and sad, right, while the mouse is speaking. And so her visual contemplation of the mouse's tail, combined with apparently her only rather distant and background hearing of the mouse's tail... um, uh, leads her to hear what he says as if it looked like this. Um, and again, for those who are only listening and cannot uh, see my slides, um, this is, of course, one of the visual images in the book. Um, we have the text of the mouse of the mouse's story, uh, which 
in a very narrow column, there's never more than what four small words, usually two words or two parts of words, um, in a line. Uh, and it's winding down the page like the winding tail of the mouse, right? So what's the mouse's long, sad tail? Um, Fury said to a mouse that he met in the house, let us both go to law, I will prosecute you. Come, I'll take no denial. We must have the trial, for really this morning I've nothing to do. Said the mouse to the cur, such a trial, dear sir, with no judge, with no jury or judge would be wasting our breath. I'll be judge, I'll be jury, said cunning old fury. I'll try the whole cause and condemn you to death. Um, also, the text gets smaller and smaller and smaller as you go through, um, until when you get to the tip of the tail, it's um, very, very difficult to read. Fortunately, my slide is fairly heavily magnified and I'm wearing my reading glasses so I can still make out um, what it says. Now, um, one thing which interests me greatly, which will surprise none of you, uh, is that the mouse's tail is poetic. Right? Um, he, uh, he is speaking in verse. It's clearly verse, right? You can hear that it's in verse. Fury said to a mouse that he met in the house, let us both go to law. I will prosecute you. Come, I'll take no denial. We must have a trial, for really this morning I've nothing to do. You can hear the shape of that, right? Um, you've got the, 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 Two short lines, or like a one line with internal rhyme. Fury said to a mouse that he met in the house. And then we've got a longer line with no internal rhyme. Let us both go to law. I will prosecute you. So let's see. Are those lines of equal length? Fury, Fury said to a mouse that he met in the house. Fury said to a mouse that he met in the house. Let us both go to law. I will prosecute you. Yeah, same length. Come, I'll take no denial. We must have the trial, for really this morning I've nothing to do. Yeah, roughly. It's a little, it's a little irregular, uh, the meter, but it, it's, well, it's consistent. It's a little unusual is what I guess I mean, um, but it's consistent. Um, now, I don't know exactly um, why I uh, and you... Um, so Sarah and Mighty Felix, I don't really know um, why those are in italics, because they are. I will prosecute you, which sounds like it's a reversal, right? Instead of you prosecuting me, I will prosecute you. Fury, I don't know who Fury is. Fury said to a mouse that he met in the house, let us both go to law. I will prosecute you. Okay. It doesn't. It sounds like there was more to this story that we're not getting, right? Who's Fury? Um, I mean, I assume it's not like a Fury, like one of the Greek Furies, and I assume it's not. Um, uh, I mean, if it's a person named Fury, is it a human? What kind of what sort of person is it named Fury? I don't know. Um, Fury said to a mouse that he met. That is, I certainly don't know when it starts, right? Um, Fury said to a mouse that he met in the house, let us both go to law. I will prosecute you. Come, I'll take no denial. We must have the trial, for really this morning I've nothing to do. So it's out of boredom that he is taking the mouse to court, right, to prosecute 
him. Okay, said the mouse to the cur. Okay, right, so Fury is apparently a dog, which we don't learn until the just after the second bend in the tale, right? Said the mouse to the cur, such a trial, dear sir, with no jury or judge, would be wasting our breath. I'll be judge, I'll be jury, said cunning old Fury. I'll try the whole cause and condemn you to death. Now, this does manage... Um, this does manage to, um, it's relevant, right? Uh, the mouse is supposed, is meant to be explaining why he objects to cats and dogs, right? And he does seem to be telling a poetical story about a dog who is attempting to entrap a mouse in some way, right? Um, Okay. Okay. Um, so it's relevant. Um, yeah, the house it seems to be, as you say, Cecilia, kind of pre-established uh, as part of this uh, story. I mean, we're clearly starting in the middle of the story. Um, I can only imagine that that means there must have been an earlier part of the story, which Alice just totally missed. Right. Um, so this is only a this is only a, a portion of the mouse's long, sad tale. Because, of course, this is not... Uh, if you were to put it in regular lines, it's not so very long a tale after all, right? Um, though when you stretch it out like this, uh, it makes for quite a long tale with one, two, three, four, five bends in it, right? Um, right? One, two, three, four, five, yeah. Um, so... What's the joke here? Well, again, first we start with a pun, tail and tail, right? And then we do a poem, and we do a shape poem out of it, right? Now, if you're a 19th century um, school child, right? Does anybody know? Famous shape poems. Where, when, uh, uh, anybody know in English tradition, the famous, the most famous shape poet in English tradition. This was a, this was kind of a thing. It was kind of a thing. Um, anybody ever do any shape poetry? What do they teach them at these schools these days? The great. English shape poem. Aslan's Compass has got it. George Herbert. George Herbert is the great... Uh, yes, you're right. Shel Silverstein, unfortunately, David, uh, is the wrong generation. Um, he also played with the shape poem thing, though he, like Lewis Carroll, um, was generally being satirical about the shape poem thing. Um, if you... Uh, uh, so George Herbert uh, was a Christian devotional poet, primarily, Um and uh, his two most, I think the two most famous, the two that you usually see in anthologies um, by George Herbert are one called Easter Wings and one called, um, uh, one called uh, The Altar. Those are his two most famous shape poems. And um, well, again, most commonly um, uh, anthologized, or at least they used to be. Um, no, wrong Herbert. Not the guy who wrote Dune, uh, Jared. Yeah, very, very different Herbert. Um, 
uh, yeah, you've got Frank, but then you have George, who's significantly older. Now, uh, George Herbert is a uh, seven. Uh, t- no, um, uh, Isaac Watts was the writer of hymns we talked about last week, who's also old um, from a similar time period, actually, to George Herbert. Uh, George Herbert was uh, uh, 17th century, basically 1600s, like Watt. And um, the poetry of that era, uh, George Herbert is not too far removed uh, chronologically from John Donne, right? And um, uh, metaphysical poets were all about the shape of their poetry, metaphorically the shape, like not literally the shape. Um, so like the, the structure of the poem and where like, I mean, in John Donne, you can always like, you find like the, the center of the poem and things will kind of pivot around that. And he'll usually kind of play on that. And it's all extremely clever. Um, and, uh, anyway, so George Herbert kind of takes that concept and puts it to a, takes it kind of to a different level, right? I'm not saying it's better because um, George Herbert has way fewer fans than John Donne, and there are good reasons for that. I like George Herbert myself, um, but um, his poem, I, I like Easter Wings much better than I like The Altar. Um, but again, the, the the play there is that on the one hand, it might look like a simple kind of uh, trick, like the poem Easter Wings, which is an Easter poem, of course, um, is uh, uh, in the shape, like the words form on the page, the words are printed so as to form the shape of a pair of wings, right? Um, but the point is not just like, hey, I can write something and I can make the printer print it so that it makes a picture of the thing that I'm talking about. That's a simple trick. That's a cheap trick, right? But the better trick is if you can make the poetic structure of the poem actually interact with that um, shape that it's actually forming, right? Right. And that's really cool, right? That's actually really fun. Um, And George Herbert does some pretty fun things with his shape poetry. Anyway, so this was kind of a thing. It wasn't a huge thing. It wasn't a dominant thing, literally speaking, but it's definitely a thing, right? And so in the end, he takes the pun, tail and tail, and he makes a poetic play on it. He makes a shape poem, which is a tale, which is a story that's shaped like a tale, right? And it's forced into that shape by Alice, who is staring at the mouse's physical tail while, so her eyes are following his tail while her her ears are much less avidly uh, following her, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's his story. Um, And, um, um, yeah. Anyway, so he, um, uh, he he combines these two things, right? And they are combined as a shape poem is combined, right? And he shapes this fairly um, carefully. Um, notice how we have at the top of the tail, where the base of the tail is wider, more words. Fury said to, first line. A mouse, that, second line. He met in the third line. House, let fourth line. Us both go. Fifth line, right? So, fairly long lines. But then by the time we get down to the middle of the tale, we have strictly two syllables per line, right? This morn, ing, I've nothing to do. Said the mouse to the cur, such a trial, dear sir, with no jury or judge. 
and then it starts, wood is our first monosyllabic line, right? Until it's down to almost monosyllables all the way down to the last word. And where does the poem end? What is the tip of the mouse's tail? Is the word death, right? Um, and that's where the story ends. That's where the tale ends. The tale ends with the death of the mouse. So does this story seem incomplete? Oh no, the story is quite complete, right? If you read it as a shape poem, it is complete, right? Because what is the end of the mouse's tale? The death of the mouse, right? Death is the end of the mouse's tail. Uh, of its T-A-I-L, the tail. You, you see, right? And yeah, exactly, Jackrabbit Monster. That's why it's a sad tale, because it ends in death, right? There you go. There you go. Um, so it becomes this fun sort of literary play, right? Um, now, let me think for a second about the shape here. Because it's, a, as I say, it's a peculiar poetic shape. Fury said to a mouse that he met in the house, let us both go to law, I will prosecute you. Come, I'll take no denial, we must have a trial, for really this morning I've nothing to do. Said the mouse to the cur, said the mouse to the cur, such a trial, dear sir, with no jury or judge would be wasting our breath. I'll be judge, I'll be jury, said cunning old Fury, I'll try the whole cause and I'll, and I'll, uh, and condemn you to death. Um, uh, okay. It is pretty regular anapests. Fury said to a mouse that he'd met in the house. So, we're basically anapestic tetrameter. One of Dr. Seuss's favorite meters, Right? I saw somebody making a Dr. Seuss comment earlier on. Um, Don't tempt me to spend a long time talking about Dr. Seuss because, man, that guy could write uh, poetry. Um, uh, we could do a great discussion of Dr. Seuss's poetics. Oh, my goodness. Um, but anyway, okay. Yes, anapestic tetrameter. Fury said to a mouse that he met in the house, let us both go to law. I will prosecute you. Um let us both go to law. Ah, hang on a second. I just figured out the italics. I figured out the italics and I will prosecute you. It's not a reversal. I is italicized um, in order to... I is italicized in order to make sure we stress that word, right? Because it's an unstressed syllable in the anapestic pattern. Anapest... Um, just in case you're not familiar with the vocabulary, right? Anapest means unstressed, unstressed, stressed, right? Um, uh, as I say, Dr. Seuss loved this meter. Um, Sneetches is an anapestic tetrameter. Uh, the Grinch is an anapestic tetrameter. Um, uh, um, then the Grinch did the same to the other whose houses, leaving crumbs much too small for the other whose mouses. One of my favorite lines. Um, uh, leaving crumbs much too small. Bum, 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 bum. Um, uh, so the star-bellied sneeches had bellies with stars, but the plain-bellied sneeches had none upon theirs. Bum, 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 bum. That's anapestic tetrameter. Four anapestic 
feet, unstressed, unstressed, stressed, per line, right? Fury said, Fury said to a mouse that he met in the house, let us both go to law, I will prosecute you. Hear how that falls, right? I will, I is the first syllable of the unstressed phrase. I will prosecute. Pros is where the rhythm of the line leads you to lay the stress, right? But of course, there's a tension there between the emphasis of the of the prose, right? The emphasis of the speech and the poetic line. And so in order to make sure you don't just skim, you don't get so into the rhythm that you skim over it, um, uh, this was written back in a day when people were more experienced doing that sort of thing and were more likely to get caught up in the rhythm of the poem. Um, he italicizes I and you, right? You is stressed. I will prosecute you. Come, I'll take no denial. We must have a trial. For really this morning I've nothing to do. Said the mouse to the cur, such a trial, dear sir, with no jury or judge would be wasting our breath. Um, you listen to the, yeah, Twas the Night Before Christmas is an anapestic tetrameter as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yes. Um, notice one of the things that he does with the anapestic lines. Um, anapestic feet. So iambic feet, which we talk about more in Exploring the Lord of the Rings, because most of the poetry, uh, most of Tolkien's poetry is in iambic meters. Um, most of all English poetry is in iambic meter, but um, uh, anapest is more unusual and harder to maintain, which is one of the reasons why, how, one of the ways you can know that Dr. Seuss was a complete poetic genius. But um, uh, one of the effects of it is that the stressed syllables jump out at you much more. Um, couldn't you hear it when I was reading it? Fury said to a mouse that he met in the house, let us both go to law, I will prosecute you. Um, Fury. So said, mouse, met, house, both, law, prosecute you. Take, denial, must, trial, really, morning, nothing, do. Noth, do. Right? Mouse, Cur, trial, sir, jury, judge, jury, judge, waste, breath, judge, jury, cunning, fury, try, cause, dem, death, right? Those are the stressed syllables in this poem. And you can get almost the whole story from the, trust, from the stressed syllables, right? Um, they, they really do... Uh, Jump and like all of the ominousness, right? All of the, um, the there's a lot of weight on those on those stressed syllables, um, emphasized by the internal rhyme that we get in the first line of each uh, of each of those, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yep, yep. Um, okay, so. Um, This is one of the things that interests me about the fact that he's lapsed into poetry for the tale, is that um, the contrast between the mouse's story, which Alice fails to attend to. She's not paying at, at any attention 
to what the mouse is actually saying, right? Um, she doesn't, she's like so ignoring him. She doesn't even parse like what he means by saying it's a long, sad tale. Um, that's a really almost cliched thing for him to say, right? Um, and she's not tracking because she's not listening to him at all, right? In fact, she's treating his recitation of his poetic story, which is actually kind of eventful, right? Um, confusing, weird, because we've got a dog and a mouse, you know, in like a legal debate, <laughs> right? But um, but yeah, Jack Rabbit Monster says at least it isn't dry. That's the thing. She treats it like it were the mouse's recitation of the William the Conqueror boring paragraph, right? Um, so we have these two things next to each other. The recitation of the William the Conqueror paragraphs by the mouse, right? The driest thing he knows. And the much jazzier and more interesting to listen to, not to mention look at on the page, uh, right? Based on the shape poem that we get. Um, and, uh, um, and yet Alice's response is she's exactly as detached from the one as from the other. The one failed to dry her off. The second failed uh, to engage uh, not, not even her emotions, but even her attention, right? Um, so look at what happens after. You were not attending, said the mouse to Alice severely. What are you thinking of? I beg your pardon, said Alice very humbly. You had got to the fifth bend, I think. I had not, cried the mouse, sharply and very angrily. A knot, said Alice, always ready to make herself useful and looking anxiously about her. Oh, do let me help to undo it. I shall do nothing of the sort, said the mouse, getting up and walking away. You insult me by talking such nonsense. I didn't mean it, pleaded poor Alice, but you're so easily offended, you know. The mouse only growled in reply. Um, okay. Uh, yes, Jack Rabbit Monster says another pun that turns on abstract and concrete. I had not, and I had a not, right? Um, yes, yes, exactly. Um, also notice, uh, Jack Rabbit, the back end of that pun as well. Oh, do let me help to undo it. Right. Oh, do let me help to undo it. Um, notice that that statement is in Anapests, right? Oh, do let me help to unknot. I'm not, said Alice. Oh, do let me help to undo it. Um, uh, yeah, Mad Violinist, you're right. There are um, anapests all over this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, do let me help to undo it. So the repetition of do, right? She wants to undo the knot. But of course, she also, like, the irony is there is something that she should try, that she should want to undo, and that is her lack of attention, right? She has, in fact, insulted the mouse again, right, um, through her inattention and her uh, disregard uh, for the mouse and what it's saying and what it's feeling, right? Um, there is something that she should want to help to undo, and that is the offense that she's given to the mouse. Um, but, in, but, of course, it's the knot that she is mistaken because she's just unlike the duck who 
seems to be sort of stepping in in kind of comical misunderstanding. Alice is misunderstanding too, but she's just mishearing, right? Um, she doesn't have a, like a grammatical confusion, right, based on what the mouse said. She's just not listening. Um, and uh, mistakes N-O-T for K-N-O-T, right? Um, and again, there's the irony. She's always ready to make herself useful, right? That Alice, always thoughtful, right? Always looking to help others. Always, you know, looking out for people who might need a little assistance. Except when she's completely ignoring them, right? Um, and yes, Sarah, what's a wonderful point. We see the play on the word do um, there. Do let me, uh, uh, like the do let me, like, I, you know, do give me permission, right? And to undo something. So do used as a helping verb, right? And then do used as the main verb, undo, right? Used as the main verb there. Um, those juxtaposed against each other, you know, have that comical, uh, uh, that comical sort of sense there. Uh, and I agree. I think that that's, I think that that's fun. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the mouse then responds in the end. Um, yeah, David, this is a great question. Alice thinks of herself as quite a good student. Is this an indication that she's not so clever as she thinks? That's a question that's almost impossible to answer from within this story, right? Um, we saw a hint when she was trying to recite her multiplication tables that she the answer was in there. She, she really did know what four times five was. She just... Could, there seemed to be some disjunction between her and her words, right? Um, here we see that there's a disjunction between her and the mouse's words, <laughs> right? Um, I believe that she actually knows the Isaac Watts poem by heart, um, How Doth the Little, right? Um, I'm sure she successfully memorized How Doth the Little Busy Bee and could have recited it to her tutor, um, but it came out wrong when she recited it, right? And again, I I doubt that she accidentally recited How Doth the Little Crocodile when she was in her lessons, right? Back in the normal world. Um, but here, it doesn't come out right. Again, that Alice is herself puzzled by her own words. Again, that, 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 that disjunction between her and her words um, is, uh, is important. Is clearly a, 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 an important element here. Um, but now, when there's a disjunction... So so anyway, so David, just coming back to your point, that's why it's, I find it impossible to tell. Um, she's either very clever or much less clever than she thinks, right? Um, I'm perfectly willing to believe she's probably less clever than she thinks herself, right? But I don't think it's safe to conclude that all of this is just a joke that Alice is the butt of the joke here, right? That Alice is quite dumb. Uh, you, know, that, you know, Alice is actually a stupid little girl and the text is making fun of her for that. I, I, I don't think that doesn't feel to me right. It doesn't seem right. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Um, I know, I know, JJ. She's not Mabel for crying out loud. That's exactly it. Um, but as I say, you could prove either 
side, right, of that argument uh, if you tried hard enough. All right. Um, I think this is my only passage from uh, uh, from chapter four. And Dan, I agree. On the one hand, all of this, all of these like individual like jokes and these kind of like these nesting puns and this play in these different plays on things are all nested within this dream framework, which is, I agree with you, a brilliant evocation of how everything gets away from you in dreams. Um, that's, uh, uh, yeah, that's very much how this, that's like you know, another level of all of this, right? Uh, which makes this a lot of fun. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, Chapter four. So she's, um, this is after she's gone into the house of the white rabbit, right? Who is bossing her around. And when she got in there, she, she drinks something else again, doesn't she? And then grows very large. Um, I'm pretty sure it was drinking this time that made her grow large. Uh, and she's swollen up to the, it barely fits in the room now, right? And this is her comment on that. It was much pleasanter at home, thought poor Alice, when one wasn't always growing larger and smaller, being ordered about by mice and rabbits. I almost wish I hadn't gone down that rabbit hole. And yet, and yet, it's rather curious, you know, this sort of life. I do wonder what can have happened to me. When I used to read fairy tales, I fancied that kind of thing never happened. And now here I am in the middle of one. There ought to be a book written about me, that there ought. And when I grow up, I'll write one. But I'm grown up now, she added in a sorrowful tone. At least there's no room to grow up any more here. Because, of course, she is at the maximum capacity of that room. But then, thought Alice, shall I never get any older than I am now? That'll be a comfort one way, never to be an old woman. But then, always to have lessons to learn. Oh, I shouldn't like that. Oh, you foolish Alice, she answered herself. How can you learn lessons in here? Why, there's hardly room for you, and no room at all for any lesson books. And so she went on, taking first one side and then the other, and making quite a conversation of it altogether. But after a few minutes, she heard a voice outside and stopped to listen. Jack Rabbit, yes, we've got Alice being uh, two people again, right? Um, uh, yes, yes, Alice being two people again. Um, as we see now, there's plenty of her to go around, right? Because she's very large again now. Um You'll notice also this trend of the play on things that we normally take for granted, right? Like the phrase, I'm all grown up, right? Which means two things at once, right? Or at least elides two things at the same time. On the one hand, it does refer to physical growth, right? You are all grown up when you have become a full-sized person, right, as an adult, from being a more diminutive child. But yet, of course, the concept of growing up is not just about alteration in physical size, right? Um, though that f expression is used, alluding to both things, um, they're not growing older, growing more mature, is not, in fact, the same thing as merely gaining in size, which, of course, is what has been played on already several times, right? Um, like she was much too big a girl to be crying, right? And that was certainly true. Um, and she herself makes the joke, right? When I grow up, I'll write one. But I'm grown up now, 
right? Um, then she turns, drawing herself attention to that phrase, grown up, right? I shall, shall I never get any older than I am now? Have I finished growing up? Because I'm as big as I can possibly get now, right? Um, so shall I never get any older if I can? Are, in fact, growing up and growing up the same thing, right? Um, since we use that phrase to refer both to growing older and to gaining size, if I've gained sufficient size, does that mean I shall never grow older? And that's comfort in one way, never to be an old woman, right? So perpetual youth doesn't sound so bad. Um, but then if you remain, if she remains the age she is, then she'll have to be in school forever because she's in school now. And if she never gets any older, then she'll have to be in school forever and always have lessons to learn. And she shouldn't like that. Um, uh, as we've, once again, see the motif of Alice's lessons uh, creeping in her, in here, and indeed her, um, well, I won't go so far as to say aversion, that's a strong word, but her um, um, complicated relationship, right? Her ambivalent relationship with her lessons, perhaps. Um, yeah, yeah, um... Right. Uh, Jocelyn says, silly, Alice, I would love to be in school forever. Um, I, right. To which Mighty Felix response, responds, yes, but maybe not second grade. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I was, I was gonna, I was gonna say spoken like somebody who didn't have to go to school forever. <laughs> right. Um, that is, it's much easier to long for that and appreciate that when you don't have to do it. Um, especially to be staying in second grade. Um, Yes, yes. Um, she calls herself foolish and then counter-argues against herself. Um, obviously, she can't always have lessons to learn, right? She won't be learning lessons for the rest of her life. Now that she's grown up, she certainly won't be learning lessons anymore because she's so grown up that she barely even fits in this room and there's no room at all for any lesson books because she excludes the lesson books from the room because she is so large and has filled the room to capacity. Um, and here again, you see the other kind of layer of the joke that's being added to that, right? Why do we teach children lessons, right? Why do we make them learn lessons? To expand their minds, right? Well, Alice is fully expanded at this point. There's not even room for the books in the room, right? Um, her horizons are about as broad as they can possibly be right now, or at least she is as broad as she can possibly be. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, she's making quite a conversation of it altogether, right? Um, in the end. Anyway, let me go backwards. Skipped a whole bunch of stuff in that first paragraph. She almost wishes that she hadn't gone down the rabbit hole. The two things she complains of. It was much pleasanter at home, right? And of course, pleasanter is not a word any more than curiouser is a word. Um, she's um, being rather indulgent with her comparatives here, right? Uh, but anyway, what, what does she complain of? She complains of A, always growing larger and smaller, and B, being ordered about by mice and rabbits, right? These are her chief complaints uh, of her trip down the rabbit hole. Um, she doesn't know 
what she is, her sense of identity, as we were looking at before, her losing touch with her body parts, her um, not being in control of of who she is. She literally doesn't know if she's Alice or if she's Mabel, right? Um, And of what that means about how she fits into the world around her, right? Um, Normally, she would not be ordered about by mice and rabbits, right? I mean, that's a particularly funny phrase, isn't it? Um, Of all the animals in the animal kingdom that one might end up conversing with, one might least expect to be ordered about by mice and rabbits, perhaps. Um, She almost wishes that she hadn't gone down the rabbit hole. But, actually, there's something to be said for it, right? I wonder what can have happened to me. Very different from... uh, Notice how this is a shift for her. Before since everything was strange around her, she was convinced that she must be different, right? She must have woken up as someone else for whom the world works very differently, apparently, right? But now, by saying, I wonder what can have happened to me, implying that she's the one who has remained the same and something has happened. Well, I guess not. Something happened to me um, still makes her the center of things, doesn't it? It's not quite yet her considering herself as being the, the, you know, that the world changed around her. It's not, in fact, quite different. Um, uh, And then she connects it to fairy tales. She used to disbelieve fairy tales. And now here I am in the middle of one. I fancied that kind of thing never happened. And now here I am in the middle of one. So here she has proven. And yes, I agree. Um, General Woundwort doesn't count when it comes to the strangeness of being ordered around by rabbits. Um, General Woundwort is what we would call a bad data point (laughs) when it comes to rabbits giving orders, I think. Um, But um, uh, anyway, okay. but the fairy tales. This makes her reconsider the general question. Are fairy tales fiction? She had always fancied that they were. Fancied, by the way. It was an act of fancy, a piece of fantasy, an imagination on her part, right? In her imagination, she had fancied that fairy tales didn't happen, right? She had this sort of notion that fairy tales were fictional, even fantastical. And now here I am in the middle of one. Okay. So there she's proven. Um, Apparently she's not too grown up for fairy tales. In fact, there's another joke, another piece of irony, right? Um, When you grow up, you'll be too big for fairy tales. Well, Alice... Growing up and getting big is what made her think she's in a fairy tale. That's what made her believe in fairy tales, right? Um, growing up and getting big. Um, and I definitely think that that's a joke. 
right? Uh, on on uh, on fairy tales and on grown-ups not reading fairy tales. Um, there ought to be a book written about me. That there ought. That's a good idea. There ought to be a book written about Alice. Um, her adventures to chronicle, you know, her rather extraordinary and curious adventures, right? Um, but of course, if uh, other people read it, uh, they might think it a fairy tale or even perhaps nonsense. Um, yeah, now, Jenner Tannis, I'm not completely sure what gave her the idea that she's in a fairy tale specifically. Um, the only thing she talks about is growing larger and smaller and being ordered about by mice and rabbits. I had the vague idea when she says, I fancied that kind of thing never happened. What kind of thing? Exactly. Going down rabbit holes? Talking with animals? That's definitely a fairy tale thing, talking to animals. Maybe that's the kind of thing that she's referring to that happened in fairy tales? Um, being the victim of magical spells, such as it might be making one larger and smaller, would be also a fairy tale thing, I think. Um, but, um, yeah. Okay, let's go on to chapter five. We're going to get to my favorite poem in the book. Um, here's the caterpillar. Love this. Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I, I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed, I must have been changed several times since then. What do you mean by that? said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself, you see. I don't see, said the caterpillar. I'm afraid I can't put it more clearly, Alice replied very politely, for I can't understand it myself to begin with, and being so many different sizes in a day is very confusing. It isn't, said the caterpillar. Well, perhaps you haven't found it so yet, said Alice, but when you have to turn into a chrysalis, you will some day, you know, and then after that into a butterfly. I think you'll feel it a little queer, won't you? Not a bit, said the caterpillar. Well, perhaps your feelings may be different, said Alice. All I know is, it would feel very queer to me. You, said the caterpillar contemptuously, who are you? Which brought them back again to the beginning of the conversation. Now, um, many, uh, I am sure that many of you, um, oh yeah, the, uh, Sorry, the can't see a apostrophe n apostrophe t um, uh, is uh, that's old fashioned um, contraction. If you think about it, it makes sense. A c a n apostrophe t does not make sense. Um, I s n apostrophe t makes sense. Is not. There's one letter that you're skipping, the o in not, and so you put an apostrophe to mark where a letter is skipped, right? But can not explain myself. You've skipped both the N and the O, uh, one of the Ns and the O, and so you have to have an apostrophe for both, clearly, right? We skip the later one because we're sloppy and we don't care, right? But that's not how one used to do 
contractions. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, what was I talking about? Okay. So many things to talk about here. I could probably spend a whole class on this passage alone. Um, but uh, let's... Uh, do, yeah, I can't. I just can't. Much more. Um, all right. Um, all right. The caterpillar begins with a load... Oh, I remember what I was about to say before. If you find yourself... Frequently and inescapably remembering Bilbo and Gandalf's conversation at the beginning of chapter one of The Hobbit about good morning and what a good and what a many what you know how many things Bilbo does use the word good morning for right um, the you know with uh, Gandalf saying is it a morning to be good on right or whatever um, if that sounds familiar to you, if that sounds uh, if, if if what's being said here begins to make you think of Bilbo and Gandalf, it really should, right? That is a very Lewis Carroll moment. High Lewis Carroll influence, in my opinion, in the beginning of chapter one. And you can tell when Tolkien is setting out to write an unamusing story for children, one of the modes that he begins in is a very Lewis Carroll mode, right? Um, and that play on Good Morning uh, is... Um, um, is very Lewis Carroll. Okay, anyway, Caterpillar begins. Who are you? This, as I say, for Alice is a particularly weighted, if not indeed an insensitive question. Um, oh, good, yes, yeah, Sarah, you had just said that. I actually didn't even see your comment. Uh, but yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, yeah, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah, it looks like I was responding to you, but I could pretend I was responding to you, but no, I actually literally didn't see your comment there. Um, that's exactly right. Um, uh, Sarah was just making that observation about the good morning. Anyhow, um, uh, yeah. He begins with a very loaded question, indeed an almost insensitive question under the circumstances, because Alice is feeling quite upset about not knowing who she is, right? And he asks the question, who are you? Um, but it seems that his stress is a little bit peculiar. We get the you italicized, right? Who are you? Um... And it depends on your tone of voice, doesn't it? That could mean several things. It certainly doesn't just mean, who are you? Like, you know, or who are you? Like, you are a stranger. Who are you? The stress isn't on R, right? The stress is on you. Who are you? Meaning she is somebody whom he wasn't expecting. He was expecting somebody else, and instead this girl showed up, and so he says, who are you? That's one possible way to inflect that, Right? But there's another way to inflect it, right? Who are you? Like, who do you think you are? Which, of course, would be an even more pointed and pointedly awkward question to ask Alice, right? Uh, who do you think you are? Oh, I'm quite afraid I might be Mabel, right, would be the answer here. Um, and truly, Alice finds it not a very encouraging opening for a conversation. Um... Which is, again, a little... might seem like a strange thing, because who are you is a actually not really weird opening gambit for a conversation. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit off-putting, maybe, uh, depending on your tone of voice, but, um, you know, seems like uh, 
uh, fairly normal, but for Alice this is not encouraging, and especially if it's inflected more harshly as I expect it to be. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Um, who are you making yourself out to be? Um, a challenge to her identity, right? A question which implies you are not who you really seem to be making out that you are, right? Um, which, of course, again, really hits Alice home, right? Um, yes, Jackrabbit Monster, uh, as in, why do you matter to me? What, exactly, right? Why should I care who you are? Yes, yes, exactly. I, I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have been changed several times since then, right? Uh, okay, so she, she, poor Alice, has really lost touch with her identity. It was bad enough when she thought she might be Mabel, but now she just doesn't know. Maybe she's been multiple people. What do you mean by that? Explain yourself, the caterpillar says sternly. And again, wow, awkward commands to give to Alice. Explain yourself. I, I can't explain myself, sir. No, she's been trying to explain herself to herself for the whole book. And herself, although herself has been the primary focus of her attention, herself has also been the thing that she cannot explain. Um, so there's the neutral sense of his words. Explain yourself, right? Which just means, tell me what you mean by that, right? But of course, in the context, to Alice's ear, and perhaps to ours too, being used to Alice's dilemmas here, um, it has a quite a different sense. Um, what should she explain? It's herself that she should explain, right? She responds to it in yet a th with yet a third emphasis. I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, because I'm not myself, you see, right? Um, introducing a novel usage of the phrase, I'm not myself, right? You might not be feeling yourself, but you probably don't mean that you're questioning your fundamental identity, Right? Or fearing that you may have somehow been either externally or internally transmogrified into a different person. Right? Um, even though that, of course, would seem to be what we imply by saying, I'm not feeling myself. Um, uh, I can't explain myself because I am not myself. She doesn't know who she is, and so of course she can't explain herself. I am not myself, you see. I don't see, said the caterpillar. Once again, Alice tosses off an expression that she doesn't even think about. You see. I'm not myself, you see. The caterpillar does not see, right? She has asserted. She's made a claim about him that he sees that she is not herself. But of course, he can see nothing of the kind, right? Um, I'm afraid I can't put it more clearly, Alice replied, not understanding his objection, apparently. For I can't understand it myself, to begin with, and being so many different sizes in a day is very confusing. It isn't, said the caterpillar. Well, not apparently to him, right? What's the caterpillar doing? The caterpillar noticed that there is once again a disjunction between what one person is saying and what the other person is saying. Alice is now the victim, in a sense, of a very similar thing to what she was doing to the mouse, right? Um, 
she was not really attending to what the mouse said. She certainly wasn't trying to follow his tale, T-A-L-E, right? trying to follow his story. Um, instead, she was looking at his tale, T-A-I-L, right? Um, and thinking about that. And the caterpillar is doing a similar thing. Um, he's not playing along with her. He refuses to enter into her point of view and her expressions, right? I'm not myself, you see. I don't see. Being so many different sizes in, is in, in a day is very confusing. It isn't. It isn't a him. He understands perfectly well why she's been many different sizes in a day, right? Because he understands how this world that is strange to her works. Um, but of course, she's speaking about her own confusion. And he responds as if she had just made a claim about his confusion. But of course, notice um, that that's an inversion of what she just did. She just made a claim about him. You see. Right? She claimed that he sees that she's not herself. And he's like, I don't see, in fact. Right? And then she said that she was confused, made a statement about her own self. And he takes that as if it means a statement about him. It is not confusing. Um, again, at least not to her. Um, oh, Jackrabbit Monster, I would not be a bit surprised if the Caterpillar, if Lewis Carroll was not aware of the fact. I, I'm sorry, let me, I'm getting lost in my syntax there. Jackrabbit Monster says, Lewis Carroll you know, probably didn't know this, but caterpillars have very bad eyesight, being only able to sense light and dark, not shapes or colors. Um, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Lewis Carroll knew that. So that when the caterpillar says, I don't see, it, there's a whole other level of meaning as well. Like, I don't really have functioning eyes, <laughs> right? Um, is, of course, another meaning of I don't see. Um, Perhaps you haven't found it so yet, said Alice, and then waxes into a slightly superior kind of tone. When you have to turn into a chrysalis, you will someday, you know. And then after that into a butterfly. I should think you'll feel it a little queer, won't you? Um, what's she doing? She's showing off her information again. She learned in her lessons that caterpillars turn into chrysalis, a caterpillar turns into a chrysalis, and then after that into a butterfly, right? And so she's once again trotting out her knowledge um, in this, with this slightly condescending tone, slightly show-offy tone, right? You will someday, you know, right? Um, I should think you'll feel a little queer, won't you? You'll feel it a little queer? It'll feel strange to you? Um, not a bit, said the caterpillar. She's not just asserting facts about caterpillar biology. Um, she is making an assertion ultimately about how he is likely to feel about this future change of events. She's trying to turn the tables on him, right? He doesn't think it's confusing to be many people differently, I bet. Right? When you change, then the shoe will be on the other foot, so to speak. Right? And I bet you'll feel it strange that... Not a bit, said the caterpillar. As, of course, and of course the caterpillar, one can see, is quite right. Right? Um, it's not a bit queer 
for a caterpillar to turn into a chrysalis and then a butterfly. That's the normal life of a caterpillar, right? Whereas being so many different sizes in a day, like Alice has done, is exactly not her normal life at all, right? Um, so yeah, once again, David, we see this lack of empathy. She's trying to empathize, but she's not really empathizing. She's asserting his feelings, right? Um, but there is that she's, in a sense, she's trying to put herself inside his head, right? But she does it kind of in the wrong way. She does it assertively in that way. Um, yeah, exactly. His change, change is natural. Hers isn't thistledown. That's exactly right. Um, well, perhaps your feelings may be different. All I know is it would feel very queer to me, says Alice, going back to safe terrain, which is asserting her own feelings and how she would feel if she were a caterpillar, which would not be normal for her. Um, to which the caterpillar returns with contempt. You. Who are you? And we can hear it much more clearly that second time. Who are you? Why should I care how you feel? Right? Which brought them back again to the beginning of the conversation. Um, so this pattern of the disjunction between the speaker and the hearer, um, this, um, uh, the, the, the taking words in other uh, senses, the sort of calling her on her every turn of speech, um, is um, uh, definitely a recurring trend. Um, okay, but let's get to the poem. So, the poem. This is another parody poem. Um, here's the original poem uh, by Robert Southey, one of the lake poets. Right. Robert Southey, friend of Byron and, uh, uh, you know, Wordsworth, who's one of the romantics. Um, Robert Southey, head of the second shelf romantics, basically. You know, there's the top shelf romantic poets, Wordsworth and Keats and Byron and Coleridge. And then there's the second shelf. And Robert Southey is the best of the second shelf romantic poets. Here's his uh, instructional poem, The Old Man's Comforts and How He Gained Them. You are old, Father William, the young man cried. The few locks which are left you are gray. You are hale, Father William, a hearty old man. Now tell me the reason, I pray. In the days of my youth, Father William replied, I remembered that youth would fly fast, and abused not my health and my vigor at first, that I never might need them at last. You are old, Father William, the young man cried, and pleasures with youth, with youth pass away, and yet you lament not the days that are gone. Now tell me the reason, I pray. In the days of my youth, Father William replied, I remembered that youth could not last. I thought of the future, whatever I did, that I never might grieve for the past. You are old, Father William, the young man cried, and life must be hastening away. You are cheerful and love to converse upon death. Now tell me the reason, I pray. I am cheerful, young man, Father William replied. Let the cause thy attention engage. In the days of my youth I remembered my God, and he hath not forgotten my age. Okay, so this is Robert Southey's original poem, another wonderful 19th century uh, didactic poem. Um, uh, 
which, and you notice the trend, of course, you've got uh, the three observations by the young man, um, and, and notice the young man is observing what appears to be a contradiction in the old man, right? Um, dude, you're old, right? You're old and you've got barely any hair and what you have is gray, but you're like all strong and hardy. Aren't you supposed to be like weak and frail? Like, what's the reason for this contradiction between your age and your, your haleness, your health? Why are you in such good health? Um, and the reason he gives an instructive lesson, right? Because I abused not my health and my vigor at first that I never might need them at last, right? Because I took good care of myself when I was young and didn't fritter away my youth in like drinking and smoking and all kinds of other shameful behaviors, right? And so therefore I am hale and hearty in my old age. And then the young man says, well, again, another dilemma, right? On the one hand, like everybody knows that pleasures pass away with youth and you're old, right? You're old and pleasures pass away with youth. Everybody knows that. But you like aren't grumpy about it, right? Like you don't sit around and complain like, oh man, I, my lost youth and everything sucks now. Like he seems to be all cheerful about it being old. Why is that? And the answer, of course, is that when he was young, he remembered that youth could not last, right? So he didn't just invest himself in his youth. Um, he thought of the future whenever he did. So he's been thinking of the future since he was young um, and therefore doing some busy bee action like uh, Isaac Watts's poem, right? Um, thinking of the future, whatever I did that I never might grieve for the past. So like my whole life, I've been uh, trying to make the most of my time and be industrious. I have nothing to lament, right? I've I've lived a wonderful, healthy, um, constructive, uh, wholesome life, right? So I have nothing to regret. Um, and I have like laid in a great, you know, store of satisfaction for myself. So there we go. Now, the third contradiction that he sees, right? Man, your life is hastening. You are old, right? You're like on the on the doorstep of death, right? You got one foot in the grave, old man. And yet you're cheerful and you're not like sensitive about it. Like you talk about death all the time. It doesn't seem to bother you, despite the fact that apparently like death has got to be ready to tap on your shoulder at any minute because you're so old, right? To which, and then this other uh, conflict is resolved by Father William, who says, uh, now pay close attention to this young man right? In the days of my youth, I remembered my God, and he hath not forgotten my age, because he has had faith in God throughout his life. He has no fear for his future, and death holds no fears for him. So we have the religious moral at the end, um, the, like, uh, living a wholesome life moral in the other two sections, and there we go. So here's our constructive poem by Robert Southey, and I hope we've all been improved by that. Now, Alice is told to recite this, right? So um, uh, the caterpillar challenges her. When she tells him about how she tried to recite How Doth the Little and it didn't come out right, he wants to test this theory, right? Um, is this, does the, will this hold true? So she asks, he asks her to recite another, and he requests this one, right? Um, recite, you are old, Father William. So here she goes. You are old, Father William, the young man said, and your hair has become very white, and yet you incessantly stand on your head. Do you think at your age it is right? In my youth, Father William replied to his son, I feared it might injure the brain, but now that I'm perfectly sure I have none, why, I do it again and again. You are old, said the youth, as I mentioned before, and have grown most uncommonly fat. Yet you turn a back somersault in at the door. Pray, what is the reason for, of that? 
In my youth, said the sage, as he shook his grey locks, I kept all my limbs very supple. By the use of this ointment, one shilling the box, allow me to sell you a couple. You are old, said the youth, and your jaws are too weak for anything tougher than suet. Yet you finished the goose with the bones and the beak. Pray, how did you manage to do it? In my youth, said the father, I took, said his father, I took to the law, and argued each case with my wife, and the muscular strength which it gave to my jaw has lasted the rest of my life. You are old, said the youth. One would hardly suppose that your eye was as steady as ever, yet you balanced an eel on the end of your nose. What made you so awfully clever? I have answered three questions, and that is enough, said his father. Don't give yourself airs. Do you think I can listen all day to such stuff? Be off, or I'll kick you downstairs. <laughs> I almost got to the very end without breaking up laughing. I love this. This is one of the... Uh, this this poem is hilarious, right? Um, if you don't find this poem hilarious, I don't know how to help you. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway... Um, uh, first of all, notice the joke at, in the last stanza. I have answered three questions and that is enough, said his father. Don't give yourself airs. Do you think I can listen all day to such stuff? Be off or I'll kick you downstairs. What's the joke? What's the joke there? You see the joke? Yeah, the original poem only had three questions. The original poem is only six stanzas long, right? He asks him three questions and he answers the three questions. So not only does he parody the questions and answers, right, from the six stanzas of the original poem, he then adds these other two, uh, right? He adds a fourth question. Uh, and the father flat refused. Like, it's obviously, it is way too, it's too much. To, I answered three questions. That's like all I was contracted to do, right? The original poem only has three answers to it. So I refused to answer the fourth. And it's it's almost like um, we, what, it's almost like we get an outtake at the end, right? Like, a, uh, or, or like if the, if the very patient, uh, uh, cheerful and rather insufferable old man from Sethi's poem, um, were to have been asked a fourth question, he would have snapped, right? <laughs> right? It's kind of the, the, the funny, um, uh, the funny implication. Um, I just, uh, I just, I just love that. Um, do you think I can listen all day to such stuff? Be off or I'll kick you downstairs. Um, oh man. And the, the, the pairing of give yourself airs with kick you downstairs, right? The, the reversal, right? You're, you're puffing yourself up and I'm going to knock you down. Um, and, uh, I, I could just, that if, if there could be anything, I, 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 there could be nothing, no more violent departure from the old man's tone in the original poem, right? Then the line, be off or I'll kick you downstairs. <laughs> right? Um, oh man, uh, that's um, just hilarious. Um, and uh, do you think I could listen all day to such stuff? Right? Like, in other again, like, notice that it's like a meta joke about the tediousness of the other poem, right? Um, do you think I could listen all day to such stuff? Like, like, look, man, six stanzas of this didactic poem was enough, right? Um, if you expect me to extend this didactic poem to eight stanzas, you have another thing coming. Nobody could possibly put up with that much garbage, right, in one day. Be off or I'll kick you downstairs. Um, just uh, 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 fantastic. 
And of course, the question, the fourth question is the most nonsensical one. Um, you, you are old. One would hardly suppose that your eye was as steady as ever. If you balanced an eel on the end of your nose, what made you so awfully clever? Right. He does this quite impossible thing. Um, and there's like, there's, there's, the two things are barely related to each other, right? Like it's really unraveling strongly in that, um, uh, in that, uh, stanza. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good, good. Um, anyway, look at the rest of the poem. I want to start with the end because it's my favorite part. The man, the young man, starts by identifying another, a similar um, contradiction. You are old, Father William, the young man said, and your hair has become very white, and yet you incessantly stand on your head. Do you think at your age it is right? Okay. What's he done? What's he done? Um, uh, uh, Carol, I mean, what's the what's the what's the poet done uh, in this stanza? Done to the original, right? Um, you are old, Father William. The young man cried. The few locks, the few locks which are left, you are gray. You are hale, Father William, a hearty old man. Now tell me the reason I pray. Now, oh, by the way, someone was pointing out an excellent point before, and I don't want to skip it. Uh, yes, who is that? Sorry, I, sometimes the color that oh, it's JJ. Okay, sorry. Um, I've got a navy blue background, and JJ, your um, Twitch is putting your name in dark blue letters, so I, I can like barely read it. Um, right, JJ says, "Mirrors the end of the first line seem like it's switching rhythm or something." You are absolutely right about that. Um, the few locks, the few locks which are left, you are gray. You are hail, Father William, a hearty old man. Now tell me the reason, I pray. Hear that rhythm. Whereas the first line is different, isn't it? You are old, Father William, the young man cried. You hear the difference, right? What stands out in that, in that stanza? The young man, right? That's a spondaic. For this, both of those syllables are stressed. The young man. Um, uh, imagine if there were a, a slightly more young man, right? And so you added a syllable like, You are old, Father William, the younger man cried. That would be perfect. Right, the rhythm would be perfect. I mean, so there's a syllable missing. The young man cried, so it does give the end of that first line um, uh, an almost um, like triplet feel. Right, let's you're skipping a beat. You are old, Father William. The young man cried. The few lo the few locks which are left you are gray. Um, I I keep almost misreading that word because it's really awkward. Um, I think you're supposed to read it. The few locks which are left, you are gray. It's a very insistent rhythm in these lines, but it doesn't jive with it. It's, that's just not a good line uh, there. Um, nothing like Lewis Carroll's uh, lines. Um, and then we get every young man stanza. We get that same pattern, JJ, at the beginning, right? You are old, Father William, the young man cried. Um, yeah, good. So anyway, but back to... Um, uh, the original, and we get that you are old, Father William, the young man said. We 
he repeats that same exact pattern, and your hair has become very white, and yet you incessantly stand on your head. Do you think at your age it is right? Um, the the sound of the of the rhythm exactly identical to uh, the original one, except better. And your hair has become very white is a very smooth and easy line to read. Anyway, okay. Um, yeah, so the difference, as JJ says, um, the questions that the young man asks in the first one are seeking wisdom, right? He's noticing a puzzling contradiction, right? Or rather, something something contrary to his expectation, to the young man's expectations, right? Of what he expects to find in an old man. What is the reason for this apparent contradiction in you, wise old man, right? Um, and here, the young man uh, uh, is, as, as uh, J.J. says, chastising Father William. Um, your hair has become very white, and yet you incessantly stand on your head. Do you think at your age it is right? There is an intrinsic contradiction. The intrinsic contradiction is that you are a white-haired old man, and yet you're behaving like a young child. Um, yet you incessantly stand on your head. Do you think at your age it is right? Now, what we expect from the original text, um, and again, notice the brilliance of this. The whole premise of the original poem is there are expectations. Those expectations are disappointed, right? And so he's inquiring, why is it that this is not working out like I expect it to work out? I expect you to be weak, crotchety, and afraid to die. Because you're old, right? And isn't that what it means to get old? To be weak, crotchety, and afraid to die, right? How is it that you're neither weak, crotchety, nor afraid to die? Um, is that so? That's the premise. It's the it's the I perceive something that is diff that differs from my expectations, right? And so I want to know the answer to it. And of course, this is an opening for him to be edified by the great wisdom of the old man. Um, the shape, although it's it is it's turned very differently, exactly as you say, JJ. There's a uh, there's a rebuke implied, um, not a marveling, but a rebuke. So there's already a, an almost a, like a ninety degree turn, right, in the young man's attitude towards Father William, right. But again, the shape is still the same. Like you are not expect. I expected a little more gravitas in a in a man of your age, right? But you're standing on your head all the time. Um, do you think that's right? Right? Like, do you think that's how old men are supposed to act? Um, so what should we get now? Again, based on our expect, based on the expectations that we've built from the original poem, which is about expectations and them being disappointed, um, we expect the old man to respond with, you know, maybe like that was again. It was a little. The man's the young man's a little harsher, right, than the other one, but uh, but we could still recover this. We could still make a good didactic poem out of this, right? Um, you know, if he says something like, um, you know, in my youth I tried to be like totally serious, but as I grew older I realized that you should sing tra la la more often and eat bannocks in the moonlight. Like he could, like that could be like the direction that Father William could go, right, in order to still go in a southy-ish direction. Um, the kind of direction that we, the original poem builds us to expect to hear from the old man, right? Um, and um, uh, instead, in my youth, I feared it might injure the brain, 
but now that I'm perfectly sure I have none, why I do it again and again? Um, <laughs> that's not the kind of wisdom we were expecting from him, right? Notice it still has the same shape, right? Um, I had one belief when I was younger, but as I grew older and more mature and more wise, I realized a truth that had escaped me when I was young, right? Um, when I was young, I thought I would injure my brain by standing on my head so I didn't do it, right? But as I've grown older, I have learned that I am I definitely do not have a brain. And so therefore, there's no reason not to stand on my head now, is there? Right? Uh, again, it's the superficial shape of Father William's reply, but <laughs> quite different, quite unexpected, right? Um, turning on its head, as it were, this whole image of the sober, wise, uh, uh, benevolent old man of Southey's poem. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. It does stand the original poem on its head, Mighty Felix. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now the second one, which I think is uh, might be my favorite. So hard to choose favorites in this poem. You are old, said the youth, as I mentioned before. <laughs> I love, I love that. I, I notice how it's teasing the original poem, right? Um, the young man keeps saying exactly the same thing. You are old, Father William, the young man cried. You are old, Father William, the young man cried. Like the first line of the of stanzas one, three, and five are exactly identical, right? And so uh, Carol draws attention to this in a comic way which perfectly fits the rhyme, the, 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 the metrical scheme. You are old, said the youth, as I mentioned before, right? Um, I'm going to return to my original topic, which is that you are old, right? Um, and have grown most uncommonly fat. Yet you turned a back somersault in at the door. Pray, what is the reason of that? And these two things seem almost entirely disconnected, right? I mean, other than I suppose people who are uncommonly fat might find it difficult to turn a back somersault in at the door. Um, uh, I, I, I think I can relate to that. Um, so I suppose there's that sort of disjunction there. Um, but again, notice this is uh, you are old. Notice the thing that follow the you are old, as I mentioned before, right? You are old. The few locks which are left, you are gray. You are old and pleasures of with youth pass away. You are old and life must be hastening away. Right? Uh, notice, of course, that those all rhyme with each other. Right? Notice also, also to give Southey his credit that the last rhyme right? The last line of each of the young man's lines are also identical. Now tell me the reason I pray. And you notice the way that Southey twists the word pray. Um, so that by the end, he keeps saying, pray, tell me the reason. And at the end, he's telling him to pray, right? To God, right? And that's a, a, a clever turn by Southey there at the end. Um, Southey's poem isn't a bad poem. Uh, it's tedious in, in some ways. And, um, uh, didactic, but uh, not a terrible poem. But that you are old and have grown most uncommonly fat is almost a non sequitur, right? As is turning a back somersault in at the door. Pray, what is the reason of that? Um, I, um, we do get the pray 
uh, inserted there, right? But notice the difference in stanzas three and five between what is the reason I pray and starting with pray. Pray, what is the reason of that? Pray, how did you manage to do it? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. He takes pray and, and, and reason as well. Yep, exactly, exactly. Um, but here he's asking the young, the youth is wandering away from pointing out an apparent, the first one was still an apparent contradiction. Right, a, 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 a strange disappointment of expectation. You are an old white-haired man, and yet you're incessantly standing on your head. That's weird. What's up with that? Right? Um, he's not stating the same kind of contradiction. You are old and fat, and you turn to somersault. Why? Right? Um in my youth, said the sage, as he shook his gray locks, I kept all my limbs very supple. By the use of this ointment, one shilling the box, allow me to sell you a couple. <laughs> this is the most scathing, scathing um, satire in the whole poem, isn't it? Um, he begins by answering in exactly the same way that Sadi's old man does. In my youth, I kept all my limbs very supple. So, so do you want to know how you can still be agile enough when you are old and fat to turn back somersaults in at the door? I'll tell you my secret, right? And that's not unlike the f answer to the first question of the old man in Southey's poem, right? Um, you know, good living in my youth, that's how, young man, right? And so if you follow my great example, then you too um, will be will have supple limbs when you get old, right? But then you notice um, <laughs> what he... Where he turns it into an advertisement by use of this ointment. One shilling the box. Allow me to sell you a couple, right? Um, he becomes a charlatan offering a mountebank, right? Offering, a, 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 you know, nostrums, right? Offering, offering fake remedies. Um... The juxtaposition of the wise counsel of Southey's old man, Southey's father William, um, with this kind of like, uh, um, you know, cheap advertisement uh, for some, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, exploitative product, right, is... Uh, uh, Oh man, it's just, it's perfect. It is a perfect send up of this, uh, you know, to juxtapose this giving of wisdom with the selling of merchandise then the selling of questionable merchandise. Right. Um, uh, oh man, uh, it's awesome. Yes, exactly. Jack rabbit monster says, follow me for more limberness tips. Yeah, exactly. You could see a version of this poem that would be, would have been written. Uh, um, I assume, you know, Lewis Carroll might've included to, 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 to create a similar effect, right? Um, he might've said, um, uh, he kept all his limbs very supple uh, with one simple trick, right? Uh, click here to learn more. Um, that's exactly the kind of language, like um, the way that he is parodying um, the language of uh, crank advertisements uh, in the 19th century press is very much like that. I mean, you've exactly hit on the tone there, Jackrabbit Monster. Um, that's um, that's exactly right. Um but again, the way that the way that he's parodying 
this giving of advice. Like again, the 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 the, the juxtaposition of the, the cheapening of the advice of the old man by you know in parallel comparing it to the uh, the selling of fake remedies. Um, implying that the advice that the old man and that Southey's old man uh, is giving is just as useful, useless and perhaps even as exploitative and self-serving uh, in some way. Um, again, it's, it's, uh, it's just delightful. Um, you are old, said the youth, and your jaws are too weak for anything tougher than suet. Yet you finished the goose with the bones in the beak. Pray, how did you manage to do it? That is my favorite rhyme in this entire poem. The rhyme of suet with do it. Oh, man. So perfect. So perfect. So hilarious. Like, that is just... Um, oh, oh man. That is so Lewis Carroll. Um, uh, <laughs> in my youth, I took to the law and argued each case with my wife, and the muscular strength which it gave to my jaw has lasted the rest of my life. Um, he doesn't just continue getting more and more absurd, right? He kind of pivots it back and does a joke in a different direction. Um, a joke at the expense of lawyers and wives both, right? Um, the muscular strength which it gave to my jaw has lasted the rest of my life. Uh, and of course, that's very close, in a sense, closely parallel to the kind of advice uh, that Father William was giving in Southey's poem. Um, but um, I, <laughs> twisted and absurd. Not as absurd, of, as absurd, of course, as finishing the goose with the bones in the beak. Um, oh, man. Um, uh, <laughs> Copperfinch says, gerontologists are begging their patients not to do this. <laughs> absolutely absolutely yep yep all right um i it's it's very late but i i couldn't not talk about the father william poem today um fortunately there's more poem up uh, more poems upcoming of course i did not um uh uh get all the way to uh chapter six but we got most of the way through chapter five um let's continue reading read seven and eight for next time we'll see how we do i'm not giving up yet uh i'm uh, mostly treading water i think uh hopefully not salt water it's not certainly a, a pool of my own tears yet to this point but anyway um thank you for joining me this has been a great deal of fun i feel like some of the patterns are starting to gel a little bit don't you think um let's continue to see as we get to um pig and pepper which is we get first or we get we will get to the the mad tea party which is one of the most famous moments in alice in wonderland but first we have to get through pig and pepper which is not one of the moments that's most famous uh in uh, uh in this book so we will see all right thanks very much everybody and uh i will see you guys again next week bye now